You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com back ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the corbett report i'm your host as always james corbett of corbettreport.com coming to you from the sunny climes of western japan on this 27th day of october 2014 thank you once again for tuning into the corbett report podcast and this is another edition of questions for corbett where you ask the questions and i supply some answers and as always we have an awful lot to get through and i really do want to try to get through everything we have on the plate for today so in order to do so i'm going to try to keep my rambling to a limit and uh, hopefully answer these questions as concisely as possible with ample documentation evidence and links to back them up of course in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com, so please follow that link if you're watching this on YouTube or anywhere else back to the show notes so that you can get the fuller explanation of the various things we're going to talk about today. But before we get into the questions and open up the mailbag, I would first of all like to make an, an important announcement. Next month, in late November, I'm going to be making my way to Groningen in the Netherlands to deliver a series of lectures. So, This is good news, I think, for all of my Dutch listeners, and there are a lot of Dutch listeners in the crowd. I don't know why this is, but for some reason, I have a disproportionate number of listeners in the Netherlands. It's not the largest number of listeners as an absolute number, but for some reason, just given the small size of the country, there are there seem to be an awful lot of listeners there in the Netherlands. So, hey, if you happen to be a Dutch listener, or if you can make your way to the Netherlands next month, you uh, can come meet me in person, and I hope to see you there in Groningen, in the northern Netherlands. Uh, I'm not sure why every year I'm being invited to northern Europe during some of the coldest months of the year, but... It is what it is. I'm going to enjoy the trip and hopefully deliver some powerful lectures, including one on November 19th that will be delivered for Studium Generale as part of a series of lectures on geopolitics they're going to be presenting in the next month or two, including such illustrious speakers as William Engdahl. So I'm in some very illustrious company there. I will put the uh, link in for that uh, particular lecture so you can get the details if you can make it to Groningen. There will be another lecture I'll be delivering on November 20th in a different uh, location, and then there will be, um, at some point, I will be delivering a Q&A session at the University College Groningen, but the details of that have not yet been worked out. I will pass them along once they have been so. So I will be in Groningen, I believe, off the top of my head, from November 18th to November 22nd or thereabouts. So if you are in that area, I certainly hope that you will be able to stop by and hopefully we will be able to meet up in person, and I'm looking forward to that very much. Having said that, uh, because I am now preparing my lectures for Groningen, uh, there is only going to be one more podcast episode before uh, before I leave, and uh, there will also be a QFC, uh, sorry, not a QFC, an FLNWO, a Film Literature in the New World Order episode that I'll be releasing around the time that I'm actually going to be in Groningen, to tell you the truth. But anyway, so that's the uh, the upcoming podcast schedule. And on that note, since there is only time for one more podcast before I leave, I'm going to leave it up to the Corbett Report members to decide what the podcast should be on. Uh, I would like to do one on China and its role in the New World Order and uh, how it plays into this developing Cold War scenario and all of this uh, shenanigans that's going on on the global stage right now, I think that would be very interesting, and I really want to document the ways that China has been built up as a type of paper tiger. But 
There's also a lot of interest I've seen online regarding this recent plane crash with uh, the Total uh, CEO, DeMargerie, and there's a lot of information coming out about that that we could compile into a report. So I'm going to leave it up to the Corbett Report members. If you are a member of CorbettReport.com, please sign in and leave your vote in the responses. Do you think we should be talking about China or should we be covering the DeMargerie plane crash? And whichever one you guys choose, I will do. Uh, probably next week. I'm not making any promises, but I think the next podcast will be released next week, and then I'll be heads down working on my lectures. So um, that's coming up. Also, one more thing that is coming up. Uh, as always, I, I do appreciate all the questions that come in for QFC, but as always, I cannot answer them all. But if you do want a chance to ask a question, there's another opportunity coming up next week. In fact, next Monday, I'm going to be doing a AMA on the r slash conspiracy subreddit at uh, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern time, i.e. New York time on Monday, November 3rd. If that preceding sentence was gobbledygook, don't worry, it probably doesn't matter. But if you do know what a Reddit AMA is, I will be doing one next week. So you can uh, log in there and leave your questions for me. And uh, there will be a thread announcing that AMA. Um, I believe that will be up in the next few hours, probably, after I record this. So I will throw that link in the show notes when it's ready, so you can read more about that. Okay, with all of that as preamble, and of course with the usual caveats that, of course, you can get your questions into me via email, via YouTube video, via Twitter, via recording uh, your voice on the uh, the application I have on the contact form at CorbettReport.com. However you want to get your questions to me, please send them in, and I will add them to consideration for the next QFC, but again, we can't answer, unfortunately, every question that comes in. And as always, priority is given to Corbett Report members who leave their questions on the post for this QFC episode. And on that very note, there were a few members who did leave questions on the previous edition of this Questions for Corbett podcast, i.e. Did the Fed steal Ukraine's gold? And we had three different questions come in, so let's answer those questions first. And the first one comes in from Devin Rice, who writes, are the protocols authentic or are they a forgery? Now, I'm assuming that Devin Rice is referring to the protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, a, 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 a work that was first published in Russia in 1903, purporting to be the secret minutes of the first Zionist Congress held in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And it has for a long time generated a lot of controversy. There are those who say that these are the authentic meeting minutes of that meeting. And then it's for a long time been held that this is a forgery, which I find to be a, a problematic or confusing term in this case. Uh, basically, a type of plagiarism and a little bit of jiggery-pokery in there um, going on. And th it's an interesting question. My overall take on this, my general take, would be to say that whenever it comes to these confessional documents and the ex expose tell-alls or, or quotations from famous people that purport to say really out outlandish things, my, my take is I do not believe it until it is proven to me, because it is so easy to make up a quotation, for example, of a famous person and just start spreading it, and it will spread like wildfire on the internet. And it doesn't necessarily have to have any basis in truth whatsoever. There's no source given, but people just believe it because it sounds about right. And that's the danger with these types of documents, which is why I generally put zero credence and zero credibility into them until it is proven where they sourced from and how they were acquired and how they were propagated. 
And on the note of the spurious quotations, people might cast their minds back to a previous podcast episode on uh, Patriot mythology, where we talked about that problem of spurious quotations that fly around all too easily and readily on the in the alternative media. So it is something for us to be careful about. Now, with regards to documents like the Protocols of Learned Elders of Zion, or the report from Iron Mountain, or the, uh, the, the, the letter from Albert Pike about World War III that I mentioned in a recent Beard World Order, again, I generally think they're fake, and if they can be proven to me that they're real, then I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at that. But I, so far, I, I haven't done a great deal of research into the protocols, so if there is someone who does have some good sources on this, by all means, leave them in the comments section, and uh, we can hash it out there. But from what I've seen, this really does... I mean, it in undeniably and indisputably contains lengthy passages that are almost word for word copied over from a treatise that was written in the 1860s, I believe, by a French lawyer, Dialogues in Hell, Dialogues from Hell, Dialogues in Hell, uh, that was specifically written about the, the, re the regime of Napoleon III, and basically entire passages were just lifted out and put in the protocols um, with a few phrases inserted talking about goyim and things like that to make it sound like it was coming from the uh, Basel Zionist con Congress. There are other textual problems with this. For example, um, lengthy quotations from the Old Testament provided in Latin, which of course would be indicative of a uh, Catholic leaning, Catholic, uh, the traditional Catholic masses in Latin. Uh, traditional Judaism has nothing to do with Latin translations of the Old Testament. There's no reason they would be using that, especially because the Basel Congress was conducted in German. So really, triply no reason for them to be using uh, Latin quotations and all, all sorts of textual clues like that, which again, I think adds up to a pretty convincing case that this is not a real document. But again, I mean, let's, if there are other sources out there, if, if other people have different research, please uh, put them in the comments and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take a look at that. Okay, moving along to Richard Fitzwell, who writes, James, what is going on in JFK's secret society speech? Everybody says he is speaking of the NWO, but he starts off tongue-in-cheek on the CIA, being 10 days after the Bay of Pigs, but then seems to drift off onto the Soviet Union. So what is your interpretation? Is he referring to the NWO, CIA, Soviet Union, none of the above? Excellent question, Richard. I'm very, very glad you brought this up because this is one of those speeches that has been bandied around an awful lot in the alternative media, and it certainly does seem very interesting when you first hear it, or at least when you hear the clips of it that are almost invariably used in alt-media productions, such as this. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit 
to the extent that it's in my control. Once again, it certainly does sound from clips like those that JFK is speaking in this speech about the NWO or secret societies or something of that sort. But it becomes much more problematic when you actually listen to the full context of the speech. So just to put that speech into context, it was delivered on April 27th, 1961 to the American newspaper Publishers Association. And the text and the audio recording of the entire speech is available online. I would really, really suggest that you follow the link in the show notes to take a look at it or in um, in Richard's com- uh, comment, because it really is important for us to, to take a look at this in its totality to understand the context in which this speech is being presented. And when you do so, you start to find, well, parts of the speech that completely problematize the notion that this is really ultimately about JFK standing up to the NWO. But I do ask every publisher, every editor, and every newsman in the nation to re-examine his own standards and to recognize the nature of our country's peril. In time of war, the government and the press have customarily joined in an effort based largely on self-discipline to prevent unauthorized disclosures to the enemy. In times of clear and present danger, the courts have held that even the privileged rights of the First Amendment must yield to the public's need for national security. For the facts of the matter are that this nation's foes have openly boasted of acquiring through our newspapers information they would otherwise hire agents to acquire through theft, bribery, or espionage, that details of this nation's covered preparations to counter the enemy's covered operations have been available to every newspaper reader friend and foe alike, that the size, the strength, the location, and the nature of our forces and weapons, and our plans and strategy for their use, have all been pinpointed in the press and other news media to a degree sufficient to satisfy any foreign power, and that in at least one case, the publication of details concerning a secret mechanism whereby satellites were followed required its alteration at the expense of considerable time and money. The newspapers which printed these stories were loyal, patriotic, responsible, and well-meaning. Had we been engaged in open warfare, they undoubtedly would not have published such items. But in the absence of open warfare, they recognized only the tests of journalism and not the tests of national security. And my question tonight is whether additional tests should not now be adopted. If we add that passage to the mix, doesn't it kind of sound like JFK is actually giving some version of the loose lips sink ships message to these newspaper publishers? Like, I'm not going to tell you what to publish, but if you guys publish the wrong things, those damn Ruskies are going to get their hands on it. It's a very different idea of this speech that we get from passages like those, and it would be an interesting experiment to conduct to put out just that isolated clip of this speech without any context and to say, look, it shows JFK was basically just a 
an evil sensor and uh, allow people to to basically ingest that without knowing where it comes from. And I bet you the very same people who believe that this secret society speech is standing up against the secret societies would believe that this speech is indicative of him being a uh, dishonest and, uh, and contriving and conniving president. Um, I, I, again, it's just what little bits of it that you pick out of there can really drastically alter the nature of the message being presented, which is why you should never trust isolated, tiny bits that are taken out of context of various speeches and things, especially when you have access to the original source document, which you do online with right at your fingertips. So before you go around spe- uh, believing and, and propagating this type of knowledge, it would be good to put it in its context. For my money, I believe this is not a speech that ultimately is against the, uh, the, the secret societies, but generously, we're being generous here, you could perhaps make the argument that those bits of that speech that are usually excised and presented as evidence that he was trying to speak against the New World Order... Well, they might have been, those bits of the speech might have been included so that people who could read between the lines would understand those parts of the speech. But again, when you draw out and take a look at the bigger context, especially because the preamble of the speech talks specifically about Karl Marx and his early career as a would-be journalist and uh, kind of making fun of him for that. And it clearly puts it in the Cold War context, clearly really addressing the Soviet Union here, and then clearly talking with that message about don't publish secrets to the newspaper association. So I really don't see this as being the type of speech that it's generally proposed as being. So thank you very much for bringing that out, Richard Fitzwell. And that is another example of why we need to be very careful about the sources we're using and to look at the full information that's present- that's not being presented in those short clips that we sometimes get. Let's move along to the next question. This one uh, from Green Crow, another Corbett Report member on the last post of the uh, QFC number 17, who writes, uh, yet another drill, should we be worried? And provides a link to an RT article with the very sensational headline, Bankopolip Bankop- <laughs> Bankopolypse Drill. I can't say that word for the life of me today. Bankocalypse Drill. U.S. and U.K. to run too-big-to-fail collapse simulation. And this does sound very ominous. Oh, it's a drill about a bank apocalypse. So, um, you know, is this another one of those drills that's used to conduit in a false flag event? Well, specifically on this particular uh, drill, we can say that it did not actually eventuate into a false flag scenario because it actually took place uh, one or two weeks ago at this point. Uh, this this um, this post was from October 11th. The drill was held the following week. It's now October 27th. So obviously this did not particularly eventuate in anything in particular. And it should also be noted that these types of stress tests have been done numerous times since the 2008 Lehman Brothers collapse, both in the US and the EU and the UK and everywhere else in the world besides many other banking uh, systems have been subjected to these stress tests, which are generally referred to as stress tests rather than Bangkokalypse drills, which probably generates a lot of clicks for RT, but is not necessarily the best way of framing this. So um, this particular drill, no, we don't have to be worried about it, which is easy to say in retrospect, I suppose. But nonetheless, I've given the reasons why I would not have been and was not concerned about that in the past. But also on the general point, because again, it's something that's often brought up in the in the alternative media that, you know, there was a drill and then it, it actually happened, which again is, is very convincing when we only hear about the positive 
results of those types of things. So we hear about an event and then we found out, find out there was a similar sounding drill in, in the same area a week ago or, or something of that sort. And it sounds, oh, there's a link. But we, what we do not hear is the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of misses that occur in that. So there are drills happening every single day in every corner of the country, imagining all sorts of scenarios. So occasionally, yes, they do coincide. And I think sometimes, absolutely, those drills are used as a conduit for real events, but not all the time. And certainly, we don't have to get concerned about every single drill that is held because we would be in a state of constant terror if we looked at any list of of the drills. And I'll include a list, an interesting list that comes from a Reddit um, uh, cons- uh, uh, conspiracy subreddit post under the title, For those thinking a training exercise is proof of a false flag, here's the exercise calendar for one agency in one state. Multiple events almost every weekday statewide. And it is a pretty interesting um, calendar that's provided uh, looking at IEMA, which I guess is the Illinois version of FEMA, the Illinois local state version of FEMA, I suppose. Uh, And just it's it's just that one agency's uh, list of drills for the month of October 2014. And again, every single weekday and on some Saturdays, uh, drills being held all over the state, multiple drills every single day. So again, just because there is a drill does not mean we have to panic. Um, and again, it's one of those things like numerology where you can look backwards after an event and say, look, all these numbers line up. But I have never once heard someone accurately predict an event based on drills in the same way I've never heard once anyone accurately predict an event based on numerology. So as an interpretive or as a predictive tool, it is, as far as I know, completely useless. So until someone can actually predict an event based on a drill... And I've fallen into that trap before. I've talked about drills and, oh, we should watch out for this one before. But I become more and more wary of that type of uh, uh, discourse because, again, there can be a, a million, million, million false hits for every positive, true hit that, that occurs with those types of things. So they're not really useful, I think, as a way of looking at, at events before they happen. All right. Um, well, that's it for those questions on the previous uh, questions for Corbett Post. Once again, Corbett Report members, subscribers who uh, pay as little as $1 a month can sign into the website and leave your questions. You will be given priority in every QFC episode. And there were also a number of uh, comments on that thread offering help. Last uh, QFC, I did mention the fact that I'm overwhelmed with the work on Corbett Report, and uh, and a lot of people uh, left comments on that thread. A lot of people emailed me personally to say, oh, I'd be willing to help. A lot of uh, offers for help with research. Of course, if you do want to help with research, that's what these open source investigations that we're doing on CorbettReport.com are about. We've had one on Ebola. We had one on ISIS. We had one on MH17. And absolutely, I love it when people are contributing links and talking about the different uh, ideas and analysis. That's the open source investigations. That's where your research help really does come in handy. Um, But that's not really what I need the help with because we already have that open source investigation. What I need help with is the boring, mundane, repetitive work that no one wants to do, which is the uh, sorting through my email inbox and and uh, po- editing videos and posting things to the website and all of that work, which is just, you know, it's not something anyone wants to do, let alone myself, but needs to be done. And it's also not the type of work I would entrust to random internet strangers because it's uh, uh, very sensitive to the, the nature of the work we're doing. So 
we'll see. Again, we'll see how that plays out in the future. But I do thank everyone for um, putting their their voice in the mix and uh, raising their hand as a potential volunteer. It is very nice to know there are a lot of people out there that care about this as much as I do. All right, let's move on to the next question. This time, uh, we're going to open the mailbag and go to the email questions. This one is a question from Maynodge. Maynodge? You will excuse... All the people who write in will excuse, I hope, the fact that I am almost invariably going to pronounce your name wrong, unless it is a very simple name. But um, Maynodge writes... The day before 9-11, there was $2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon, but I saw a video that, that said they adjusted around $5 trillion, and 2.3 is the amount they can't adjust. Later, around 2009, in Congress, with the help of Ellen Grayson, they acknowledged $9 trillion is unaccounted for. So, totally, until now, how many trillions is officially acknowledged? Okay, thank you for the question, Manaj. This is a very important question, isn't it? Because it goes to a very interesting issue that is almost invariably overlooked when people talk about events like 9-11, and which I've attempted to draw some attention to with my 9-11 conspiracy theory video and my money trail videos and other, uh, other such work that I've done on 9-11, which is this idea of the missing trillions from the Pentagon. And it is now, I hope, part of the common knowledge in at least the 9-11 truth community that uh, Donald Rumsfeld did get up on September 10th, 2001, and did declare a war on bureaucracy to combat the problem of these missing trillions. But there are some caveats here. First of all, the issue of the 2.3 trillion missing first arose from an audit of the DOD's books from 1999, the 1999 fiscal year. So this problem was known about for at least a year prior to the 2001, the September 11th attacks. And I've seen videos. I'm sure I can't probably dredge them up now. They've probably gone gone 404 in the way things do on the internet. But I've seen videos of committee meetings that were held in February of 2001, for example, prior to 9-11, certainly, where they were talking about this issue and the accounting issues with the Pentagon's accounting. So this was not something that was announced for the first time ever on September 10th, 2001. That's something we should clarify. Secondly, the standard response, the debunker response to this, would be to say that the 2.3 trillion missing is not missing, missing. It's not like it just disappeared. It's that it was spent, but it can't be accounted for with proper accounting procedures because yada, yada, yada. And there's all sorts of ridiculous excuses. There's been so many different legacy computing systems that have been used by the Pentagon for accounting, and some of the systems don't speak to each other, and and they can't, you know, balance this and that, so they have to create fudge entries to make the books balance and things like that. So there is a standard response to deal with this. But the point that you raise here in this question, Manoj, is an important one, which is the question of what is the total now? Uh, at In the 1999 audit, it was discovered $2.3 trillion worth of transactions couldn't be accounted for. Well, that has mushroomed since then. Uh, people might have noticed when Cynthia McKinney confronted Donald Rumsfeld on this issue in that uh, excellent uh, video that's been spread around quite a bit of her uh, in the committee hearing in 2000. I want to say 2004 when she confronted Rumsfeld. At that, by that point, it was uh, already 3.5 trillion was being thrown around, and the latest figure that I have seen, although this is now actually a bit out of date, but last July, Reuters of all institutions put out a three-part story called "Unaccountable: The High Cost of the Pentagon's Bad Bookkeeping." which uh, talks about the number now being at $8.5 trillion. That's right, $8.5 trillion has somehow 
fumbled through the Pentagon's hands, and we know they've kind of spent it on stuff, but we can't exactly keep track of what. The Reuters article is, uh, as you would expect, something of a whitewash, and it does end up basically blaming it on bad bookkeeping. Wouldn't you know? I mean, these Pentagon people, they're just so they are so honest and forthright, and they're doing their best for the country, but oops, there goes another few trillion dollars. Um, it, it is ridiculous. And this is the type of thing, if it was more widely publicized, people would be very upset about it. Even the most asleep of the asleep would be very upset about this issue if it was more widely publicized, which is why I'm surprised Reuters even wrote up about it at all. But I'll throw the link in so you can take a look. As a great way of introducing this topic to people, I would suggest an infographic that's available on coolinfographics.com. It's a repost from something called mastersinaccounting.org. But uh, it's a very good infographic that just has some of the basic pieces of this puzzle that I think, again, you could send around to even the most asleep of the asleep. And undoubtedly, a lot of people would be outraged by the, the craziness, the insanity of this, and the bad bookkeeping that has led to this $8.5 trillion that's gone missing. Um, $9 trillion according to this infographic. So there you go. Uh, the, the number continues to go up because this problem obviously has not yet been solved. Um, not that it's meant to be solved, of course, but that's the other side of the story. So, at any rate, you're right. This is an ongoing story. It continues to accumulate. It wasn't just September 10th, 2001, and then nothing. It started before September uh, 2001. It's continuing now. It will continue into the future. People should be outraged about it. Let's spread some of these links. Once again, I will put the links in the show notes so that you can spread some of this information. And let's move on to the next question. We have a question in from... Harald, <laughs> or it's not Harold. I, I double-checked. Harald. I, again, don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry, Harold. I have followed you on some of the important topics you've brought up. I believe you are right on when it comes to MH370 and MH17. On that note, do you see any connection with these deep state events and what is happening now in China? Excellent question, Harold. I do appreciate the question, and it is an important one, because obviously this craziness that has happened with MH370 and MH17, to whatever extent it is now off the media radar, it still has a bearing on what's going on. And there was some major operations that were performed this year with those flights that I'm not sure we have seen or that we will ever ultimately see what that was really about. I'm sure there's a lot of backdoor intelligence agency type of shenanigans that we will never have direct access to, but there have been a lot of theories that have been floated about this, including one that quite specifically connects MH370 to China. Obviously, because MH370 was headed to China when it suddenly went missing. So um, why why was this? Was this in some way targeting China? Well, uh, that idea has been forwarded by, amongst other people, the throw, trust them as far as you can throw them, ex-department, uh, state, state department insider, George H.W. Bush was the best president we've had in our generation. Uh, baloney blower, <laughs> Dr. Steve Pachenik, um, the real-life Jack Ryan, as he is often touted. Um, he and others have been pushing the story that MH370 was in fact carrying, secretly and illegally, uh, a dismantled 
U.S. drone that was downed in Afghanistan and was being transported to China, again secretly, on MH370 and was commandeered by the Americans who did not want that technology to fall back into Chinese hands. That's one story, and it has been floated, and not just by Steve Pachenik, but I've noted he has been one of the people pushing this. So again, I'll throw a link into that fuller story so you can read some of those details. It's at least an explanation, and it makes about as much sense as any of the other ones I've seen. So I will throw that link in, and uh, again, you guys can decide. Is there uh, a reason why specifically MH370 on its way to China was targeted. Maybe this is part of that reason. Uh, On the note of this story, uh, there is an interview that I hope to be conducting between now and the time I actually leave for Groningen, which will address this in some more detail. Not with Dr. Steve Pachinik, by the way. Um, So I'm hoping to get that out sometime before I leave. And so hopefully in the coming weeks, you'll see something along those lines and we can explore that more fully. But while we're talking about China, let's go to another email. uh, This one from Paul, who writes... Uh, Considering the fact that all presidential candidates are vetted by the powers that be, is not Beijing's approach at least more honest in admitting that it will decide who gets on the Hong Kong, on the Hong Kong ballot, excuse me. Thank you for the question, Paul. And for those who do not know about this situation, basically, yes, the, um, the Hong Kong elections for the chief executive that's coming up, um, in 2017, I believe. Is that right? Uh, I'm not going to check off the right now, but uh, the upcoming um, Hong Kong chief executive elections, which were promised to be basically universal suffrage, free for all, anyone can run. Uh, Beijing is now attempting to say, well, no, we're going to make sure we approve uh, whoever runs for this election. So that is part of what's motivating the anger of the people of Hong Kong at the moment. And uh, that certainly isn't the whole story, but that is a part of it. And at least the the sort of immediate proximate cause of what's going on in Hong Kong these days. But um, so Paul's question here, well, at least Beijing is open and honest about it in America or whatever. I mean, let's not delude ourselves. The, the candidates, the two candidates that end up vying for president, the highest office of the land, haha, uh, clearly vetted by the powers that be. So in this case, they're just being honest about it. Well, let me t- put this from my perspective as a voluntarist with obviously anarchist leanings. Uh, I don't care where the a government is or what government it is. I am 100% opposed to its claim to have a monopoly right of the uh, implement- implementation, the, the, uh, the, the first use of force, which is why I'm against governments everywhere. I'm against the U.S. government and the Canadian government, the Japanese government, the Chinese government, the Russian government, I'm against government. So I don't care if they're dictators out in the open or dictators in secret. They're dictators and they deserve to be opposed. So my hats do go off to everyone who does rise up and try to do something about their oppression. Having said that, I am fully aware that there are more nuanced and more effective ways of uh, protesting and arguing rather than simply trying to get a democratic vote that's likely going to be rigged anyway. I mean, I understand that's not exactly the be-all and end-all of this, but I am glad that people are at least getting angry and taking to the streets, which is more than you can say in a lot of these Western democracies where, of course, as we say, the exact same shenanigans are going on just behind the scenes. So, um, So it's a complicated issue and one that I think will be addressed in that upcoming podcast on China that I'm planning to do. 
if you vote for the China podcast, that is, uh, as opposed to the Crashes of Convenience podcast. So hopefully we can address that in some more detail, because there's a lot of nuance to that, I understand, but I, my sympathy, my support is not with the government of Beijing. I do not like dictators, even if they're dictators out in the open. I give them no bonus points for that. All right, thank you again for the question, Paul. Let's move along to the next question, this time an audio question that was left on the contact form of CorbettReport.com via the SpeakPipe application that allows you to record your question uh, right there on your computer via your computer's built-in microphone. And this question comes in from Max. Hi, James. Max reporting from the volcano. Quick question. Knowing what we know about uh, the end of the Second World War and the people that got, or the corporations that got uh, fined or brought before a judge in regards to financing the Third Reich, would you think that the, or that Prescott Bush took one for the team, being the only big name brought down in financing the Third Reich, and thereby allowing his offspring, Bush Sr. and Bush Jr., to fill presidential slots in the future. That's it from me. Thank you. Thanks for that, Max. I hope things are well for you in the volcano. Um, An interesting question. And again, for people who don't know, I'll include some links in the show notes so that you can flesh out this story. But yes, the story being that the Union Banking Corporation was uh, had its assets seized in 1942 under the Trading with the Enemy Act, as it was discovered to have been part of the Nazi financing that uh, through um, Hitler's angel Fritz Thiessen and uh, the, the ties between the U.S. and and Dutch and the Nazis and how that the, how those funds flowed. Uh, the the premise of the question is, did Prescott Bush take one for the team and then his subsequent generations were rewarded with the presidency, both his son and grandson? Uh, an interesting question, but I think with a flawed premise, because it implies that Prescott Bush was in any way adversely affected by his c- connection to the Union Banking Corporation. The UBC did have its assets seized, so it basically was squashed, but... Prescott Bush was not in any way adversely affected by this. He went on to have a long, happy career, uh, being the treasurer of the first national campaign by the uh, Planned Parenthood uh, group. Whoa, surprise, surprise. A Bush eugenicist? Why, I never. Although his son did go on to pen the Family Planning Act that uh, sterilized American Indians, amongst other targeted groups, against their knowledge, will, or consent. But... Uh, what else is new? Um, so he he did that. And then in the 1950s, he became a United States senator. He had a long, prosperous, happy career and was in no way whatsoever adversely affected by this. Um, there are, I mean, there are ways that this story has has continued to propagate through through the decades. But it wasn't, I think, even until maybe the late 1980s when, when George H.W. Bush took over the presidency that this story was picked up again by researchers. It was disseminated, I believe, in the early 1990s. It was seriously examined in the early part of last decade, and there were some mainstream articles about it, including in The, the Guardian in the UK. 
Um, but again, it hasn't had very much, if any, po negative political effect on the Bush family, other than just being dismissed as smears and, oh, I mean, the Anti-Defamation League looked into it and decided it was okay, so therefore it's okay. Um, and so it's been a lot of hand-waving. So it really hasn't uh, directly uh, adversely affected either Prescott or the Bushes in general. So I wouldn't look at it in those terms of being sort of a he, he's taking one for the team, more that he took what he could get while he got at it, while he got at it, <laughs> speaking of lousy English, and uh, and he was handsomely rewarded uh, afterwards with a nice, prosperous career. So, and of course, with the uh, the subsequent generations, and now looking like Jeb really is shaping up for 2016. Oh, yay. Oh, joy. So again, I will throw some links in about this, including the original Washington Post 1942 article, Hitler's Angel Has Three Millions in NY Bank that broke the story, but uh, it didn't go very far after that, as I say, and I'll throw in some other links, including, I think, one of the most uh, comprehensive articles I've seen on this, How Bush's Grandfather Helped Hitler's Rise to Power uh, by Ben Aris and Duncan Campbell. It was published in The Guardian in 2004. So some good starting points, at any rate, for the investigation of that hidden piece of history. Not so hidden, but uh, but completely ineffectual, apparently, in terms of actually um, motivating anyone to do anything about this. So, again, it's a good question, but unfortunately, I don't think it really did affect uh, Prescott Bush. But on a somewhat related note, stick, sticking with World War II and the Bushes, let's go to Carter, uh, who writes, oh, sorry, Steve, uh, who writes in, how do you think the Bush crime family connections going back to at least World War II, with its complicity in millions of Jewish people exterminated, reconciles with its current seemingly favorable relations with Zionist Jewish people? Okay, Steve, thank you very much for the question. So if I'm parsing that correctly, the Bushes, obviously, in this day and age, very much Zionist Israeli supporters, as we saw in spades in the George H.W. Bush presidency, and of course in the George W. Bush presidency, the neocon presidency, which was an Israeli presidency in many ways, uh, considering the neocons who were running that administration. Uh, so how does that reconcile with Bush... Prescott Bush, having been part of UBC that was funding the Nazis, that was opposing the Jews. I think that this question uh, assumes, it, it falls into that trap that we often do, that for example, the, the Jewish people is one homogenous entity. Everyone is the same. And so the people who are being targeted by the Nazis are the same people as the Zionists uh, in at the top of the Israeli political system, which, again, I think is an incorrect assumption. Uh, the Rothschilds and others who were admittedly directly involved in the creation of the State of Israel have as much to do with the average uh, Jewish person as as uh, a, a Rockefeller has to do with the average American. Uh, almost nothing. They, they are completely different. But we've been trained to think, oh, Rockefellers are Americans, so they care about what happens to America. Oh, the Rothschilds are Jewish, so they care about what happens to, to the average Jew. They don't. Of course they don't. They're completely worlds apart, which is why the Bushes can help Hitler finance the and finance the Nazis and uh, and all of the, the the atrocities that went on in World War II, and still collaborate actively with the Zionists in charge of Israel. Because again, at the very top, these people are, if not all, on the exact same team. Certainly do collaborate together, and it's all about oppressing the people below them. So it's not it's not a it's not a, a horizontal. Uh, 
camaraderie that exists between people that, of similar nationalities or religions. It's a top-down relationship between the oppressors and the oppressed. And chances are, if you're watching the Corbett Report, chances are you are on the bottom rung of that ladder of power and the bottom, the base of the pyramid. And we're talking about the people at the top of that pyramid. So, um, so I think that's the way we have to see that relation. And in that regard, it makes perfect sense that the Bushes would collaborate with all of those people at the top. Because again, they're all hand in hand. More to say about that, obviously, but let's move along this time to Carter, who writes, I've been wondering why MSM outlets will, from time to time, enter into the world of actual reporting. For example, the Washington Post reporting on the Al-Qaeda in Iraq PSYOP. It just seems like a contradiction in their lapdog nature to bark at their master. Thanks. Thank you, Carter. Very good question. And this relates back to a, an article that I've been talking about quite a bit in my recent ISIS reporting. Um, that was a Washington Post article from 2006. That was, uh, let me just get the headline, Military Plays Up Role of Zarqawi, that talked about secret Pentagon briefing documents that were leaked to the Washington Post that admitted that uh, that the Al-Qaeda in Iraq leader, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, was part of a, well, he was not, it, these documents did not show that he was part of the campaign, but he was the subject of an American PSYOP campaign to make Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Zarqawi in particular seem more important than they really were. Uh, a, a very interesting article and one of the many pieces of the puzzle that greatly problematizes our uh, understanding of ISIS and more on ISIS later. But uh, uh, again, a very good question. Why would the Washington Post report something like this that clearly, I mean, is clearly not the type of thing that the Pentagon really did want reported because this really was a PSYOP that was being run, as this article even admits, against the U.S. people, at least tangentially, um, if not fully against the U.S. people themselves, indirect contravention of, of the laws of land. And it is true. I, I hope if there's anything that people who have listened to the first few hundred episodes of the Corporate Report podcast will have garnered up to this point, it's that there are often really sensational, amazing admissions and, and, uh, and exposures that happen in mainstream outlets. They happen all the time. And it does occur. I mean, front page of, uh, was it the Washington Post again? Uh, talking about the, the callboy ring at the White House under the uh, Bush president or was it the Reagan presidency? Uh, all of the, those kinds of stories that do come up and they do get reported on. But I think the difference is these types of sensational, truly sensational, truly game-changing stories like the 8.5 trillion, 9 trillion, whatever it is by this point, missing from the Pentagon, those types of stories, they do get reported on occasionally by mainstream Reuters and Washington Post and what have you. But those reports that come up are invariably, they come up they disappear. They, they will get mentioned, they will get noted by alternative researchers and hopefully dug up and, and remembered and preserved for the important pieces of the puzzle that they are, but they get, they get reported on and then nothing. It's silence, tumbleweeds. Uh, but whenever there's a distraction issue, whenever there's some ridiculous story that no one really cares about and affects nothing, it will be drummed into you 24-7-365 until you really believe it is an important story. That is the difference. That is how this grander PSYOP works. And that's why, I mean, I there are a lot of reporters out there that genuinely do want to report on things and genuinely do want to get the scoop and genuinely would be interested in ex exposing sensational stories. But they tend to be the reporters that uh, will get assigned to something else if they do expose something interesting or they will 
understand that their reporting on interesting things will never be picked up and disseminated widely, but their reporting on fluff will be, so they do what's the best for their career. Or if they continue to persist, they will be Gary Webbed and end up with two bullets in their head being called a suicide. So... I think that, again, it's a complicated system of propaganda, and it's not to say that everything that's in the mainstream is wrong and everything that's in the alternative media is right. That Of course, that's not the case. And again, we have to take each story on its own merits, which is the slow and hard way of doing things, but there's no shortcut to intellectual rigor, as I have said on this Questions for Corbett podcast in the past. Well, we're running out of time, but we still got a lot to cover. Let's do it. Uh, There's going to be another audio question here. Um, Let's go to an audio question from Stephen. I'd like to know what your opinion is of commentators like Jim Rickards of the death of money fame. Jim strikes me as a massive apologist for Western foreign policy. He routinely disparages theories of world events outside of the official State Department narratives and he openly admits working extensively with the CIA on financial wargaming. But his contrarian economic analysis is diametrically opposed to the current establishment. This level of cognitive dissidence in a very intelligent and perceptive individual raises warning flags for me. Perhaps I'm being too conspiratorial, but do you think commentators like Jim Rickards are preparing the economically savvy segment of the population to look the other way as the villains change costumes? Thanks, James, and stay safe. Thank you for the question, Stephen. A very good question. And for those who don't know, Jim Rickards is one of those economic analysts who manages to straddle a mainstream and alternative perspective. He does get certainly a lot of mainstream coverage, but he also gets a lot of play in the alternative media for some of the things that he reveals and some of the talking points that he has. So, for example, as Stephen mentioned, he wrote The Death of Money recently, obviously talking about the economic, the brewing monetary cataclysm that is uh, taking shape in fiat currencies all around the world and, of course, at uh, at the Federal Reserve in the U.S. So he does get some play for that. He does uh, sometimes say things that sound pretty sensational and thus get a lot of headlines even in the alt media. And Specifically on that note, I'm not sure if you saw this, Stephen, but very recently there was a very important three-way conversation that I had between myself and Lars Schall and Paul Zaremka talking about the 9-11 insider trading story and Jim Rickard's revelations about that story that occur in that Death of Money book. Uh, He has a chapter talking about what he learned when he was helping the CIA to uh, simulate and and try to look for insider trading so they can predict events. And he he was talking about the 9-11 insider trading. The interesting part about this, he got a lot of play in some alt-media circles, despite the fact that he quite specifically came out and said, I'm not part of these 9-11 crazy conspiracy theorists that think the Bushes did it or whatever. He His line was something along the lines of, oh, you know, there, whatever insider trading took place, it was, you know, that dastardly bin Laden. So, um, again, just another shill going for the, the company line, ultimately, at the end of the day. And the company, I mean, he literally worked with the CIA. So um, it's interesting that that uh, that he gets that alt-media play. Personally, I, I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. And again, I'll, I'll reference that link to... I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes to the, the three-way conversation that we had with Lars Schall and Paul Zarebka. And I'm planning, I'm hoping to do a GRTV backgrounder to flesh that out a little bit more. So hopefully you'll see more on that in the coming days or weeks at any rate. Uh, Let's move along to another email. This one from Danny. 
I'm not sure if you've already covered this topic, but I am curious to know what all you have been able to dig up about unethical human experimentation on individuals and the public. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the CIA's MK Ultra program, but I was wondering if you could shed some light on the abhorrent, lesser-known programs that have taken place by governments and corporations. I think there would be more than enough to pull from to make a podcast about the topic. Thank you for the suggestion, Danny. I think you're right. There would be more than enough to pull from. And I've talked about this on a few different occasions in some of my different work. Uh, New World Next Week, we've covered a few stories over the years of various human experimentation that was revealed, usually decades after the fact. Uh, one that pops to mind was a... Uh, it was in South America. I do not recall where. Perhaps Central America, where they were injecting uh, prisoners with syphilis, if I recall correctly, something like the Tuskegee experiment, but it was happening with prisoners and that was revealed and the U.S. apologized, everything all better. Um, I have talked about this more specifically in, for example, an article that I wrote for the website back in 2009 called Governments and Biowarfare, A Brief History, that covered some of the experiments and things that the U.S. government had done on their own populations. Um, and so there's more details in that, including links to all of that source information in that article. And I did a bio-warfare, bio-terror uh, podcast several years ago now that, uh, that has some information in this regard. Uh, some scattered references, and in fact, you might remember from my recent Shut Up Conspiracy Theorist video that I included a little bit of uh, arch-conspiracy theorist Bill Clinton... Uh, talking in 1995, delivering a, an apology uh, on behalf of the U.S. government to victims of human radiation experimentation that the U.S. government had been undergoing from 1944 to 1974 or 1977, something in those that time frame. Uh, that was the end result of a report that was released by an advisory committee that was set up to investigate the U.S. government's role in human radiation experimentation, where they did all sorts of radiation experiments on people without telling them and all of that kind of atrocity that we're used to by this point. So it was an interesting piece of history that, that was fully admitted to. Again, Clinton apologized for it. Interestingly, a small piece of that apology has been excised and put on YouTube and put under the title of Clinton Apologizes for MK Ultra. Absolutely complete garbage. It was not MK Ultra. Uh, I have the link to the actual full presentation, uh, Human Radiation Experiments Report on C-SPAN. Please go look at it. It has nothing to do with MK Ultra, but it does have to do with human radiation experimentation that was going on. So, again, another case of disingenuous people in the alt-media putting wrong titles on things and uh, and some people going along with it because it's a title. It How could that be wrong? <laughs> so, again, always check back to the sources um, of information. But, yes, there's a lot more, and I think you're right. I think it, I could gather a lot of that into a, a podcast. So if people have more examples of those types of things, please send them in, uh, and I'll start collecting them. And at some point in the future... I probably will put together a podcast on that. And whoever out there, again, is taking notes on what we're going to cover in future podcasts, add that one to the list. All right, let's uh, move along. Just a few more minutes left and a few more questions. Let's do it. Uh, we have an email from John. We've seen so many improbable names from Madoff, with the money, to Wiener's Wiener. It's as if powerful string pullers are building and destroying their pawns as inside jokes writ large, just to thumb their noses at us impotent peons. Is this coincidence or a joke between puppet masters? Thank you for the question, John. 
Uh, this is a question that comes up uh, uh, quite a bit these days. There's an awful lot of analysis out there along these lines that you see some of these names that seem improbable. Uh, perhaps the most notable recent one was, I believe it was Nancy Wrightball, who uh, was one of the first Ebola patients to be flown back to the U.S. And people make very, very much of the fact that E-B-O-L is in her last name. The letters E-B-O-L, Wrightball. Therefore... E-B-O-L, Ebola? Come on, guys. You have to be ridiculous not to see this connection. Well, then I'm ridiculous, because honestly, I cannot fathom how that could be even taken as a piece of evidence, let alone the strongest piece of evidence that Ebola is all some big, you know, engineered psyop. Uh, I think we have to look a little bit more deeply than just saying E-B-O-L. <laughs> Clearly, it's a psyop. Um, I, that's that's probably the weakest piece of, of evidence I've seen presented. And unfortunately, it's taken very seriously by a lot of people who, who put it forward as some sort of definitive thing. Again, made off with the money. Wieners, wiener. Uh, I, I, I mean, honestly, I try to f think of how this would work. So there is this, you know, cabal of the few at the top who control everything in the world, which uh, I don't believe in. I don't believe it's a few at the top that control everything. The Illuminati do not control every incident that goes on in the world every time someone slips on a banana peel. Um, so, and, and don't give them that power. Don't give them the satisfaction of calling them gods on earth that control everything, because that's, I think, ultimately what they want to instill in us. But having said that, I mean, even if there were these, these two or three people at the top who plan everything that happens in the world, how does that work exactly? So from the time this person is born, the, uh, the, 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 the warlocks are looking over and, oh yes, right bowl, E-B-O-L, we will use this, this baby 40 years from now in an incident in 2014 in an Ebola epidemic. That's clearly ridiculous, but then what are the alternatives? So either they look for someone with a name like that, E-B-O-L, oh, perfect, yes, we can use that person. So we'll just make sure that they go to Africa to volunteer so that they can get Ebola or whatever, you know, we're doing to them and then bring them back home and, ha, huh, uh, yes, our plan is complete. Or I guess the other alternative is that the, uh, this right ball is completely made up, a fictitious character, uh, a crisis actor playing a fictitious character, and they just make up the name right ball. Oh, uh, E-B-O-L. <laughs> That'll be our little inside joke. Um, which, again, seems ridiculous to me for a lot of different reasons, including the fact that it would be pretty easy to disprove uh, by the fact that no one on the planet knows this Nancy right ball. Uh, you know, I've never heard of her. I work for that agency, and I was over there in West Africa, so what's going on? Um, but, of course, uh, with people like Madoff or Wiener, I mean, obviously these people did exist beforehand. So, again, with someone like Anthony Wiener, was his name, his family name, given however many centuries ago, was part of a long-term plan to set up this minor U.S. congressman in a Twitter scandal? I mean, again, it means nothing. I really don't believe that this is of any significance whatsoever, and people read too much into these names. So, that's my take on it. And uh, on that note, Bob writes in, What's your take on this? ISIS, I-S-I-S, equals Israeli Secret Intelligence Service, acronym for the Mossad. Da, da, da. Um, I've seen that uh, talked about uh, as well, and there's a clip to go along with that with someone, I think a few years ago, talking at some CFR event or something of the sort, talking about I-S-I-S, uh, Israeli Secret Intelligence. Um, again, I find this completely and utterly unconvincing, not only because... I mean, uh, what what we've just said, but also specifically in this case, because ISIS is really and truly a completely 
unimportant acronym that has been latched onto by the West because it's very, it's easier, it's more mellifluous than ISIL or the Islamic State or any of the other hundred or so names that this organization has been known by over the years. And that's the important point. I mean, not only is this an anglicization, not only is it an acronym based on that anglicization, but it's only one of many, 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 many such acronyms that this organization has been known by. And it's not even officially known by that anymore. I mean, the official acronym at this point would be I, uh, Islamic State. The U.S. government prefers ISIL. So ISIS is only, it's propagated simply because it rolls off the tongue, it's easy, and it, people equate it with the Egyptian God, so it gets propagated. So, um, again, ISIS is completely un, unimportant, and if, uh, if we were being accurate, we would actually refer to this group by its real name, Al-Dala Al-Islamia Fil-Iraq Wa-Asham. <laughs> my, again, my sincere apologies to all actual Arabic speakers for my butchering of the language, but um, that's the actual name of this organization, and the Arab uh, acronym the equivalent of what we would say for ISIS or ISIL or IS is Daesh. So again, nothing whatsoever to do with ISIS. Uh, the idea that this anglicization of one of the names of this group was chosen because its acronym sounded like something that could be equated to Israeli secret intelligence, again, is ridiculous. It's not an, uh, a real assessment of what's going on. And it's that type of extremely easy to do surface level, look, ISIS equals Israeli secret intelligence, therefore it's proven, that can be done in three and a half seconds and just seems to make sense without any research to back it up, any sources, any documents, any actual connections. I hate to tell people out there, but research is actually pretty hard to do, and it takes a lot of work to put these dots together. It's a lot harder than looking at acronyms and deciding that uh, you understand everything that's going on in the world. And that's not something a lot of people want to hear because they want to believe it is that easy. Um, it isn't. So again, that's my take on that. I think much too much is being spent on these very, very surface level analyses, not nearly enough on deeper anal analysis of actual sources and documents and, and tracing, you know, real connections. For people who are interested in real connections, they can look at some of my recent work on ISIS, um, including our open source investigation, including my podcast, including my recent appearance on the Mind Renewed podcast, talking about that uh, investigation, including my most recent editorial for the subscriber newsletter, uh, The Future of Syria, which has more information and a lot of links to real sources about funding and training and where it all, where it all comes from. All right. Okay, let's move on. Final question. Um, this one from Ove. <laughs> Sorry once again to anyone whose names do not roll off my Anglophile tongue. Uh, Ove writes, I was just wondering if you would consider selling some t-shirts and or hoodies with some propaganda, quote unquote, on the back slash front. If you're interested, I can make some suggestions and mail them to you, or you can start a competition where the winning entry gets a copy of the Fed documentary and a clothing of choosing as the reward. All right. Uh, okay. Thank you for this question of, uh, I do appreciate it. And this is a very common question. I get at least an email a week at this point of people saying, why don't you sell a uh, mugs or t-shirts or something? And I have never been interested in putting out swag of any sort, but I do realize that people do want to promote the website and it is a good way to do so. And it's like a walking advertisement for the truth. So that's good. And I guess we should go ahead and do this. So why don't we just put out that that idea? Um, if there is, if there are any designers out there who would like to put together some sort of 
t-shirt, sweatshirt, whatever, some kind of cafe press kind of design uh, towards the creation of some sort of Corbett Report thing, go for it. Please do. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any particular stipulations about this. Basically, if you send something in and I like it, and maybe we can proceed from there. And, uh, of course, I'll send some DVDs or whatever it is that you'd like for payment for that service. But, uh, but well, again, I'm not promising everyone who sends in anything will necessarily. I mean, I don't even know if I'll go ahead with this. But if you do have some design sitting there on in the back of your mind or on the uh, on your desktop that you're itching to get uh, get out there, send it in and we'll take a look at it and we'll proceed from there. So there you go. And that's going to do it. Let's close up the mailbag for another month. And as I say, this will be other than the next podcast, which will be either on China or on the uh, total CEO's plane crash. Uh, that will be it uh, for podcasts until I leave for ne- the Netherlands. So once again, all the links are in the show notes. Please make use of them. A ton of research goes into each one of these podcasts. I hope you make use of it. And again, always check back to the sources because who knows, maybe I'm misconstruing everything. So check back to the original sources of this information and it will serve you a lot better than listening to uh, bits and pieces that have been called by various people who may or may not be trying to trick you. And why should you ever assume otherwise? All right, uh, that's going to be it for this month. So once again, thank you for tuning in for questions for Corbett. This is James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon.